The last month or so, we have been venturing through the seven letters to the seven churches, and we've had some pretty heavy topics. We've had the loveless church in Ephesus. We've had the persecuted church in Smyrna. We've had the compromising church in Pergamum, the corrupt church in Thyatira, and we have the dead church in Sardis. And so for the last four weeks or so, I've sat back and I've watched Pastor Bob preach these, and I've sat in sermon prep meetings, and I thought, man, I kind of feel bad. He's got all these like the dead church, the corrupt church, all these negative. And then I kept looking at it, and I thought, man, I've got the faithful church. This is going to be the one that's encouraging and inspiring for my first time to preach in this church. And then I sat down to start studying it, and I realized real quick that it was a little bit heavier than I thought it would be. Now, it is a very encouraging and very uplifting letter. But as I begin to study it, I realized that in this letter to the church in Philadelphia, there are a lot of very heavy, very deep theological ideas to wrestle with. But I know that if we take this letter to heart, perhaps even more than any other letter that we'll see in this series, I think if we take this letter to heart, I think the reward is undeniably worth it. So today we are in the city of Philadelphia. Now, this is not the Philadelphia that is home of cheesesteaks, okay? This is not the Philadelphia that's home of the Eagles, the Cowboys' great rival. And it's not the Philadelphia that is home of some of the most brutal sports fans in all the world. Did you know that one time sports fans in the city of Philadelphia booed Santa Claus and pelted him with snowballs? That's pretty harsh. But although we're not talking about that Philadelphia, the Philadelphia that we are talking about is about 30 miles southeast of the city of Sardis, and it's known, just like the Philadelphia that we have here in America, it's known as the city of brotherly love. That dates back to King Attalus II, who was the king that founded the city of Philadelphia, and he had such a deep love and endearment for his brother that the city became known by the nickname the city of brother love, or the city of brotherly love, and so we still carry that name even to our Philadelphia today. And so that's where we're at today, the, the church in the city of Philadelphia. Now go with me to verse 7, and let's look at the introduction. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and who shuts and no one opens. Now look at that introduction for just a minute. He who is holy, he who is true, what he's saying is, I am the one who is holy, and I am the one who is true. I am God. I am Christ. I am the Messiah. That is who I am as I address this church. Now, the next part is really interesting because one of the greatest threats and enemies that the church in Philadelphia faced were Jews. For these particular Christians in this particular city of Philadelphia, there were the Jews that claimed to be of God, but in fact were not of God. Because they did not acknowledge Christ for all that he says he was. They did not acknowledge him as the Messiah. And so they faced this challenge, but Christ says, I have the key of David. 
Now, that would have rang really true with a Jew in that time period. The king of David refers and takes us back to Isaiah 22. And in Isaiah 22, Hezekiah, his servant, Eliakim, is given the keys to David's palace. So he is given the keys to come into the palace and to leave the palace as he pleases, as he sees fit. He's given authority over everything that the king has, over everything that David has. He has the keys to come as he go, wants, to go as he wants, and he has access to everything within the palace. And so what Christ is saying is, I am God. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. And I have the keys. I have the authority to everything that is at my Father's disposal. I have the authority over all the resources of the kingdom of my Father. I have authority over salvation. I have authority over judgment. I have authority over who gets into the kingdom of heaven. And I have authority over who will not get into the kingdom of heaven. So you get this feeling where Christ addresses this church in Philadelphia and, and they've got the, the Jewish people along with the pagans everywhere. They've got the Jewish people that are telling them constantly that they're wrong, that they're not right, pressuring from every side. And Christ says, I am God. I am Christ. I am he who has the key. I'm the one. So don't worry about what they're saying. Don't look at them. Look at me. Keep your focus squarely on me because I am the one that matters. Focus here, not on them. I want to pause right there for a minute and I want a show of hands. How many of you have ever run a marathon? All right, we got one other one in the room. Good job. So when I was one year sober, a little over one year sober, I was sitting with my wife one evening and I... <laughs> I looked at her, and we saw an advertisement for a marathon, and I looked at her, and I said, I'm going to run that. And I think she probably laughed at me and said, okay, I'll support you in that. So I decided that I was going to train for and run a marathon because I had something to prove to myself. I was one year sober. My health had been terrible. I had been a smoker. All these things were stacked against me, and I just wanted to prove to myself that I could do it. And so the next day I got up and I Googled running plan. I got couch to 5K. And I thought, man, if I'm about to do this and I'm starting at the point of couch, it's going to be a long road and it's not going to be easy. But that next day I went out and I ran for the first time. And it didn't take very long into my training before I realized and began to learn things. I learned that you have to prepare. In order to run a race of that status, you have to prepare. Even down to the littlest things, if you're going to run 10, 15 miles at a time, you can't do it in the $30 Nikes or Adidas that you buy off the rack at Academy. If you're going to run that kind of distance, you have to have a legitimate running shoe that is built for your specific foot. Otherwise, your pain and the blisters and the, everything that happens to your feet, it gets so bad you don't even want to run anymore. You have to prepare. You have to have patience. Anybody that's run a race will tell you when that gun goes off at the starting line, if you start too fast, if you go too quick too early, then you realize with about half the race left that you've spent too much of the gas in your tank a little bit too soon. And then you're left with the remainder of a race 
and you're wondering if you've got what it takes to finish. But at the same time, if you finish or you start too slow, then you feel like you're playing catch up the entire time. And to train for the race itself takes tremendous patience. I mean, you have to give it six months to a year of daily running and training to get to the point where you can do it. You have to have focus. When you get halfway through a marathon, you realize real quick that there's a lot that starts going through your mind because it's just you and the road. And I ran mine in Odessa. So you watch a marathon on TV in Dallas or New York or the Chicago or Boston Marathon. Part of what gets you through it is the adrenaline of thousands of people on the side of the road screaming at you. I ran Odessa, which means when I came down the loop and turned on Fodry, which turns into Yukon, I had like eight miles of me and nothing but my thoughts. My focus quickly went to God, if I fall over dead, please let them find me. Because there's nothing out here but me. You have to focus, but the main thing that I learned in this process was you have to show up. Every single day, you've got to show up. Not just on race day, you've got to show up every day when your phone reminds you that it's time to go train. You've got to show up every time that you plan out your meal plan, you've got to show up. And so, for six months, I showed up, and I trained, and I focused, and I prepared. And on race day, I realized that I had built up the endurance. That showing up led to endurance. Now, look at verse eight through nine of the letter to Philadelphia. He says, I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, but you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and know that I have loved you. So Christ tells the church in Philadelphia, I know your works. But it's not like the list that he gave to the other churches, like the list in, in Thyatira where he says, I know your works, your service, your love, your patience. He simply says, I know your works. And I think a big piece of that is the other letters that he writes always come with the commendation, right? I know that you've loved well or I know that you've served well. But they're always followed with a but, you, you know that feeling when somebody comes to you and they've got a little bit of good news, but you can tell by the tone of their voice that there's a but coming? Like, Daddy, I cleaned my room, but the dog made a mess in the floor. Like, it's that but. Everything hinges on that but. I know your works, but this I have against you. But to the church in Philadelphia, he simply says, I know your works. One of the greatest images that I love in this letter to the seven churches part of Revelation is at the very first of the story in chapter one, when John first encounters Christ, right? And, and we begin to see the, the fiery eyes and the feet of bronze and the white hair and the piercing sword-like tongue and all of these things. And in that moment, John makes an observation that he noticed seven lampstands. And we know that those seven lampstands represent what? the seven churches. Now, here's the part that I love so much. When John sees the seven lampstands and he sees Christ, he does not say that Christ was hovering above watching over the seven lampstands. 
He doesn't say that Christ was to the right or the left, the front or the back, watching what was going on in the seven lampstands. John says that Christ was walking amidst the seven lampstands. That means the seven churches, Christ was not above or to the side watching. Christ was dwelling and moving about within the seven churches. Every decision they made, everything that they did, we are the body of Christ and Christ dwells with us. And so in the middle of this church, in the city of Philadelphia, watching everything that they've done, this panorama picture of everything that they've accomplished, Christ says to them, I know your works. And he says, I know you have a little strength. Why'd they have a little strength? Probably because they were small in number. Because they were small in number, they were small in influence. This area that they live in and the time period that they lived in it was a very pagan environment. And so you've got people of all kinds worshiping gods of all kinds, all of it evil and vile. And then on top of that, in their city, they've got God's people, the Jews, pressing in on them on every side. It's constant pressure. And they're small in number, and they're small in stature, and they're no doubt tired. They're weak. They're weary. In this pagan environment, their worldly status, what they were able to accomplish and get based on who they were was very, very small, almost non-existent. It was a difficult situation. They were tired. They were weak. They were beat down. And they were weary. But Christ says, yet... You have been obedient to me. You have obeyed my word. You have upheld my name. And you have maintained a faithful testimony. I know your works. I know what you face. I know the pressure. I know that those that call themselves Jews but are really the synagogue of Satan. I know all these things are pressed in on you, but I'm with you and I see your works and I recognize that even though you are small in stature, in number, in influence, I know you're tired and you're weak and you're weary. I see all of that. But you've remained faithful. You've kept my word. You've honored my name. You've glorified the Father in your works. And so he says, I have left before you an open door. Now, I studied that concept this week a lot, the open door. There's so many metaphors and, and theological things running through these verses that it was hard to figure out what to focus on and what to not focus on. And this concept of doors, I could do a whole sermon just on the, 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 the imagery of that. But the scholars that I read all kind of went one of two ways, and I think it's nice to look at it, and I think they both apply just a little bit. So he says, I will lay before you an open door. The first way to look at it is it's an open door to the kingdom of God. It is access to the Father. I have laid before you a door to my Father through me that is there for you always. But the second way to look at it is I have left before you an open door of opportunity so that not only can you be in my presence and worship with me, you can go forth and carry forth the commission that I gave you to go forth and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I set before you an open door to me and to the world. And then he says they can't take it away. 
Because church, understand this morning this one thing. What God opens, nobody can close. And what God closes, nobody can open. God is sovereign, righteous, and holy, and what he puts in place cannot and will not be moved by anybody or anything. No matter how hard they try or no matter how hard they may want to see it moved. And in fact, Christ takes it even a step further. Not only does he say, I've given you this open door to my presence and I've given you this open door to do my work in the world. But he says, in the end, if you read verse 10, <clears throat> sorry, read verse 9. Those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and know that I have loved you. He doesn't just say he's opened a door they can't close. He says that in the end, when it all wraps up, they're all going to bow down and acknowledge who I am and that you are mine. One of my favorite topics, one of my favorite things in all of Scripture is the, the idea that in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Christ. And you think about that, that's powerful. That means everybody that's ever drawn breath as a creation of God will hit their knee and confess Christ as eternal, as Savior, as God Almighty. Some by choice and some not by choice. It's part of the reason that I'm drawn to do what I do. I, I want to see as many people take a knee and confess voluntarily so they don't have to be forced down to their knee. But Christ says here that in the end, they will fall down and they will worship. And they will be compelled in that moment to recognize that I in fact am Christ. That I in fact am the Messiah. That everything I said was correct and everything that you believed was correct. They will acknowledge that I am who I say I am. And then he says, and they will acknowledge, this is my favorite part of this whole passage, that I have loved you. That you belong to me that they were wrong and that you were right and that you get that recognition for being my obedient and faithful children. See, the, the faithfulness of the church in Philadelphia is not the only story of endurance that we get on this particular letter to this particular church. Because remember when I said that we were in the city of Philadelphia, which is the city of brotherly love, right? Well, brotherly love is a fraternal love. It's a love, an earthly love. It's a love I have for good friends, and it's a love I have for men that I work with in the church. It's a fraternal love. But the love that Jesus uses here when he says they will all bow and they will recognize who I am and they will know that I have loved you, that love translates agape love. And agape love is not fraternal love. Agape love is perfect love. Agape love is eternal love. It is Christ-like, unconditional love. It is a love that endures. And so, October of that year, I ran my race and I finished my race. And when I crossed that line, some things happened. I had a euphoric feeling. 
Because while there weren't people lining that long stretch of road, once I turned into the parking lot at Ratliff and did the last lap around the track inside of Ratliff, there were a lot of people. And that's when that adrenaline hit, and I'm not kidding when I tell you in that moment, I could have ran out of that stadium and gone another 10 miles. Probably another 10 feet. When I didn't hear them anymore, I'd have stopped. But that's not the point. I had a euphoric feeling. But there was something else that happened. I crossed that finish line, and I got teary because in my mind, I thought about where I had been 10 years ago. For 10 years, a year ago. I mean, it wasn't six months, eight months before I ran that race or before I committed to run it that I sat in a doctor's office who looked me dead in the eye and said, Ty, at 28, your liver enzymes are so high that I'm worried you will die an early death of cirrhosis. I went home and I prayed like crazy. I went back not long after I finished that race and he said, I don't know how, it's a miracle that you have the liver of a healthy 25-year-old man. Praise God. But I crossed that finish line and my perspective changed. My view changed. Now it was, don't tell me I can't do something because I want to do it if you tell me I can't do it. I used to live that way, but it was a little different challenge that would get me motivated. This was a healthy one. And what I'm telling you is as much as that was worth it, that endurance, that patient faithfulness to train each and every day, that's one thing. But the reward for endurance that Christ is giving to this church in Philadelphia is infinitely greater. It's so much greater. Read verse 12. Sorry, sorry, read verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." So he gives them the first thing he promises them is a reprieve, a, a keeping of them from the time of trial or the hour of testing. And, and you say, well, what is the time of trial? What's the hour of testing? We're talking about the tribulation. We're talking about that hour of testing that comes upon the whole world. Everybody will face it before the imminent return of Christ the second time. And it's going to be nasty and it's going to be hard. But here's what's interesting about it. The word keep from. If you translate that word keep from back to the original Greek, it does not translate as a word that means to protect you in the midst of. Like, I'm going to keep you from harm while we're in this scenario. What it means is, I am going to remove you from. I am going to separate you so that you avoid it altogether. And I thought, man, how do you illustrate that? And this is what I came up with. COVID was big a year and a half ago. Let's say I pick Blakely and Landry up from school. And Tanya calls me and says, hey, I'm at home. I just tested positive for COVID. I've got a fever. I'm coughing. I'm sick. I have two options. 
I can take them home into that COVID environment, but take them back to their bedrooms and shut them inside and be the only one that face-to-face with my wife who has COVID. And I can take their meals to the door and, and Lysol everything and walk away and hope that in the end, they don't end up getting a germ that goes under the door and catch COVID. That's protecting them in the midst of COVID. Or when my wife calls and says, hey, I just tested positive for COVID, I can just take them to grandparents' house so that they're removed from the scenario altogether. That's what Christ offers us, a complete and utter removal from that scenario. One scholar summed it up really well when he said, if it means, this verse means anything at all, it guarantees that true and faithful believers will be rescued from a period of great testing and trial that is going to come upon this world as a whole. So he says, I will spare you from that time. Then he says, I will make you pillars in the temple of my God. I'm not going to touch on that one too much, but just know that this is ancient world serving all kinds of gods. There are statues and pillars of every god you can think of, and the the Jews are the ones oppressing them, and the temple's always a big thing to the Jews. And he's saying, in the eternal house of my God, I will make you pillars that nobody can remove. And then he says, I will write on you the name of my God, the name of the city of my God. God, the new Jerusalem, and I will write on you my new name. That puts our identity for eternity squarely with God, Christ, Spirit. Our identity is their identity. We are in them and they are in us. What does it mean when you write your name on something? Every year, parents, you know this. You go buy school supplies, you get a new backpack, you get a new lunchbox, all the crayons, everything. You got to write your name on every bit of it. It's like a whole night with a magic marker, whatever you, uh, uh, Sharpie, Coke, Coke, Coke. And in my head, I'm like, really? If a kid needs crayons that bad, I'll just go buy him some crayons. Let him steal them. I don't care. But you write your name on everything because what? It indicates ownership. So that when somebody sees that backpack, they know by the name who it belongs to. And Christ is saying, I will write on you the name of my father of the new city, and I will write on you my new name. In other words, in spite of how weak you are, In spite of your low status and your low numbers and your low influence and your tiredness and your weakness and in spite of what your enemies may say to you or say about you, in God's future redemption, they will have a privileged position that no one can strip away. Because what God claims is his own, nobody can take that away from God. That's powerful. A new identity for eternity with Christ. So what's the application? Here's the first point of application I want to make. It is not about flashy. It is about faithful. We have this idea in the church today, not this church, but the, the, especially the church in our country, that in order to convert people to Christianity, to get them saved, that we've got to have the biggest, the best, and the flashiest. We have a kids area that looks like Disney World. We got to have a parking lot that's got all this special stuff, and we got. That's not at all what he addresses. He doesn't say anything about where they meet. He doesn't say anything about anything other than I know that each and every day you have shown up, and I know your works. It's about faithful endurance, not about flashiness. So, what is endurance? It's showing up. 
See, it's real easy to show up on a Sunday morning when the weather's good and there's some baptisms going on between services and the new guy's preaching or last week we show up, there's a potluck, which means free food, which means if you're anything like me, free food means me there. It's easy to show up on those Sundays. But what it's about, endurance is about showing up when it's not easy. In your life, when things are good, you show up. But when things are bad, you show up. When you're happy and everything that you read in the Word of God, you all know those moments where you read it and it's like it just unfolds. Like, like supernaturally, you just read it and things just click and make sense. And it's easy when it's like that to show up. But what about those times when you pray and your prayers hit the ceiling and fall back down on your head and you read the Word of God, you read the same passage eight times because you just can't get it to sink in. But it's those days, do we still show up? When we're sad, do we show up? When we're angry, will we show up? When the church is exploding and we have a thousand people at a recovery event last week and we feel like we're on fire, we show up. But when things cool off and as a church we go through a season of struggle, will we continue to show up? Because that's how you build endurance. See, we can't finish the race. Paul talked about finish your race. We can't finish the race if we don't show up on race day. And for us as children of God, as Christ followers, as the church, every day is race day. There are two key words in this letter to the church in Philadelphia, and they are faithful and endurance. Faithful endurance. So you don't have to be the fastest runner to finish the race. You don't have to be the, the best dressed runner to finish the race. All you have to do is show up and run the race. But if you don't show up, you can't finish. So here's what I want to do. I want to encourage you this morning to take a minute and spend it with God. Then I'll pray us out. But I want you to think about where in your life do you need to just show up this week? What's the challenge in your life that you just need to show up? Are we willing to continue to endure faithfully?